Section 15 of the Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Zera. The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 1, by Anonymous, translated by Dr. Jonathan Scott. Section 15. The History of the Third Calendar. My story, most honourable lady, very much differs from what you have already heard. The two princes who have spoken before me have each lost an eye by the pure effects of their destiny. But mine I lost through my own fault, and by hastening to seek my own misfortune, as you shall hear by the sequel of the story. My name is Agib, and I am the son of a sultan who was called Kassib. After his death I took possession of his dominions, and continued in the city where he had resided. It is situated on the sea-coast, has one of the finest and safest harbours in the world, and arsenal capable of fitting out for sea one hundred and fifty men of war, besides merchantmen and light vessels. My kingdom is composed of several fine provinces upon the mainland, besides a number of valuable islands which lie almost in sight of my capital. My first object was to visit the provinces. I afterwards caused my whole fleet to be fitted out, and went to my islands to gain the hearts of my subjects by my presence, and to confirm them in their loyalty. These voyages gave me some taste for navigation, in which I took so much pleasure that I resolved to make some discoveries beyond my own territories, to which end I caused ten ships to be fitted out, embarked, and set sail. Our voyage was very pleasant for forty days successively, but on the forty-first night the wind became contrary, and withal so boisterous that we were near being lost. About the break of day the storm abated, the clouds dispersed, and the weather became fair. We reached the island, where we remained two days to take in fresh provisions, and then put off again to sea. After ten days' sail we were in hopes of seeing land, for the tempest we had experienced had so much abated my curiosity that I gave orders to steer back to my own coast, but I perceived at the same time that my pilot knew not where we were. Upon the tenth day a seaman being sent to look out for land from the masthead gave notice that on starboard and larboard he could see nothing but sky and sea, but that right ahead he perceived a great blackness. The pilot changed colour at this account, and throwing his turban on the deck with one hand, and beating his breast with the other, cried, Oh, sir, we are all lost! Not one of us can escape, and with all my skill it is not in my power to effect our deliverance. Having spoken thus, he lamented like a man who foresaw unavoidable ruin. His despondence threw the whole ship's crew into consternation. I asked him what reason he had thus to despair. He exclaimed, The tempest has brought us so far out of our course that tomorrow upon noon we shall be near the Black Mountain, or Mine of Adamant, which at this very minute draws all your fleet towards it, by virtue of the iron in your ships, and when we approach within a certain distance the attraction of the adamant will have such force that all the nails will be drawn out of the sides and bottoms of the ships and fastened to the mountain so that your vessels will fall to pieces and sink this mountain continued the pilot is inaccessible 
On the summit there is a dome of fine brass, supported by pillars of the same metal, and on the top of that dome stands a horse, likewise of brass, with a rider on his back, who has a plate or lid fixed to his breast, upon which some talismanic characters are engraved. Sir, the tradition is that this statue is the chief cause why so many ships and men have been lost and sunk in this place, and that it will ever continue to be fatal to all those who have the misfortune to approach, until it shall be thrown down. The pilot, having finished his discourse, began to weep afresh, and all the rest of the ship's company did the same. I had no other thought but that my days were there to terminate. In the meantime every one began to provide for his own safety, and to that end took all imaginable precaution, and being uncertain of the event, they all made one another their hairs, by virtue of a will, for the benefit of those that should happen to be saved. The next morning we distinctly perceived the black mountain. About noon we were so near that we found what the pilot had foretold to be true, for all the nails and iron in the ships flew towards the mountain, where they fixed by the violence of the attraction with a horrible noise. The ships split asunder, and their cargoes sank into the sea. All my people were drowned, but God had mercy on me, and permitted me to save myself by means of a plank, which the wind drove ashore just at the foot of the mountain. I did not receive the least hurt, and my good fortune brought me to a landing-place, where there were steps that led up to the summit of the mountain. At the sight of these steps, for there was not a space of ground either on the right or the left, whereon a man could set his foot, I gave thanks to God, and recommended myself to his holy protection, as I began to ascend the steps, which were so narrow, that had the wind raged, it would have thrown me into the sea. But, at last, I reached the top without accident. I went into the dome, and kneeling on the ground, gave God thanks for his mercies. I passed the night under the dome. In my sleep an old grave man appeared to me, and said, Hearken, Agib, as soon as thou art awake, dig up the ground under the feet. Thou wilt find a bow of brass and three arrows of lead that are made under certain constellations to deliver mankind from the many calamities that threatened them. Shoot the three arrows at the statue, and the rider will fall into the sea, but the horse will fall by the side. Thou must bury it in the place where thou findest the bow and arrows. This being done, the sea will swell and rise to the foot of the dome. When it has come so high, thou wilt perceive a boat with one man holding an oar in each hand. This man is also of metal, but different from that thou hast thrown down. Step on board, but without mentioning the name of the God, and let him conduct thee. He will in ten days' time bring thee into another sea, where thou shalt find an opportunity to return to the country provided, as I have told thee, thou dost not mention the name of God during the whole voyage. This was the substance of the old man's discourse. When I woke, I felt much comforted by the vision, and did not fail to observe everything that he had commanded me. I took the bow and arrows out of the ground, shot at the horseman, and with the third arrow I overthrew him. He fell into the sea, and the horse fell by my side. I buried it in the place whence I took the bow and arrows. In the meantime, the sea swelled and rose up by degrees. 
when it came as high as the foot of the dome upon the top of this mountain, I saw afar off a boat rowing towards me, and I returned God thanks that everything succeeded according to my dream. At last the boat made land, and I perceived the man was made of metal, as I have dreamed. I stepped aboard, and took great heed not to pronounce the name of God, neither spoke I one word. I sat down, and the man of metal began to row off from the mountain. He rowed without ceasing till the ninth day, when I saw some islands, which gave me hopes that I should escape all the danger that I feared. The excess of my joy made me forget what I was forbidden. Blessed be God, said I, God be praised. I had no sooner spoken these words than the boat sank with the men of metal, leaving me upon the surface. I swam the remaining part of the day towards the land which appeared nearest. A very dark night succeeded, and not knowing where I was, I swam at random. My strength at last began to fail, and I despaired of being able to save myself. But the wind began to blow hard, and a wave vast as a mountain threw me on a flat, where it left me and retreated. I made haste ashore, fearing another wave might wash me back. The first thing I did was to strip, wring the water out of my clothes, and lay them on the dry sand which was still warm from the heat of the day. Next morning the sun dried my clothes, I put them on, and went forward to discover what sort of country I was in. I had not walked far before I found I was upon a desert, though a very pleasant island, as it displayed several sorts of trees and wild shrubs bearing fruit. But I perceived it was far from the continent, which much diminished the joy I felt at having escaped the danger of the seas. Nevertheless, I recommended myself to God, and prayed Him to dispose of me according to His will. Immediately after, I saw a vessel coming from the mainland, before the wind, directly toward the island. I doubted not, but they were coming to anchor there, and being uncertain what sort of people they might be, whether friends or foes, I thought it not safe to be seen. I got up into a very thick tree, from whence I might safely view them. The vessel came into a little creek, where ten slaves landed, carrying a spade and other instruments for digging up the ground. They went towards the middle of the island, where I saw them stop, and dig for a considerable time, after which I thought I perceived them lift up a trap-door. They returned again to the vessel, and unloaded several sorts of provisions and furniture, which they carried to the place where they had been digging. They then descended, which made me suppose it led to a subterraneous dwelling. I saw them once more go to the ship, and return soon after with an old man, who led in his hand a handsome lad of about fourteen or fifteen years of age. They all descended when the trap-door had been opened. After they had again come up, they let down the trap-door, covered it over with earth, and returned to the creek where the ship lay. But I saw not the young man in their company. This made me believe that he had stayed behind in the subterraneous place, a circumstance which exceedingly surprised me. The old man and the slaves went on board, and getting the vessel under weight, steered their course towards the mainland. When I perceived they had proceeded to such a distance that I could not be seen by them, I came down from the tree, and went directly to the place where I had seen the ground broken. I removed the earth by degrees, till I came to a stone that was two or three feet square. 
I lifted it up, and found that it covered the head of a flight of stairs, which were also of stone. I descended, and at the bottom found myself in a large room, furnished with a carpet, a couch covered with tapestry and cushions of rich stuff, upon which the young man sat, with a fan in his hand. These things, together with fruits and flower-pots standing about him, I saw by the light of two wax tapers. The young man, when he perceived me, was considerably alarmed, but to quiet his apprehensions I said to him as I entered, Whoever you are, sir, do not fear. A sultan, and the son of a sultan, as I am, is not capable of doing you any injury. On the contrary, it is probable that your good destiny may have brought me hither to deliver you out of this stump, where it seems you have been buried alive, for reasons to me unknown. But what surprises me, for you must know that I have been witness to all that hath passed since your coming to this island, is that you suffered yourself to be entombed in this place without any resistance. The young man felt assured at these words, and with a smiling countenance requested me to take a seat by him. When I had complied, he said, Prince, I am to acquaint you with what will surprise you by its singularity. My father is a merchant jeweller, who, by his industry and professional skill, has acquired a considerable property. He has many slaves, and also agents, whom he employs as supercargoes in his own ships, to maintain his correspondence at the several courts, which he furnishes with precious stones. He had been long married without having issue, when it was intimated to him in a dream that he should have a son, though his life would be but short, at which he was much concerned when he awoke. Some days after, my mother acquainted him that she was with child, and what she supposed to be the time of her conception agreed exactly with the day of his dream. At the end of nine months, she was brought to bed of me, which occasioned great joy in the family. My father, who had observed the very moment of my birth, consulted astrologers about my nativity, and was answered, Your son shall live happily till the age of fifteen, when his life will be exposed to a danger which he will hardly be able to escape. But if his good destiny preserve him beyond that time, he will live to a great age. It will be, said they, when the statue of brass that stands upon the summit of the mountain of Adamant shall be thrown into the sea by Prince Agib, son of King Cassib, and, as the stars prognosticate, your son will be killed fifty days afterwards by that prince. My father took all imaginable care of my education until this year, which is the fifteenth of my age. He had notice given him yesterday that the statue of brass had been thrown into the sea about ten days ago. This news armed him much. Upon the prediction of the astrologers, he sought by all means possible to falsify my horoscope and to preserve my life. He took the precaution to form this subterranean habitation to hide me in, till the expiration of the fifty days after the throwing down of the statue, and therefore, as it is ten days since this happened, he came hastily hither to conceal me, and promised at the end of forty days to return and fetch me away. For my own part I am sanguine in my hopes, and cannot believe that Prince Agib will seek for me in a place underground, in the midst of a desert island. While the jeweller's son was relating this story, I laughed at the astrologers who had foretold that I should take away his life, 
for I thought myself so far from being likely to verify their prediction, that he had scarcely done speaking when I told him with great joy, Dear sir, trust in the goodness of God, and fear nothing. Consider it as a debt you had to pay, but that you are acquitted of it from this hour. I rejoice that after my shipwreck I came so fortunately hither to defend you against all who would attempt your life. I will not leave you till the forty days have expired, of which the foolish astrologers have made you apprehensive, and in the meanwhile I will do you all the service in my power, after which, with leave of your father and yourself, I shall have the benefit of getting to the mainland in your vessel, and when I am returned into my kingdom, I will remember the obligation I owe you, and endeavour to demonstrate my gratitude by suitable acknowledgments. This discourse encouraged the jeweller's son, and inspired him with confidence. I took care not to inform him I was the very agib whom he dreaded, lest I should alarm his fears, and used every precaution not to give him any cause to suspect who I was. We passed the time in various conversation till night came on. I found the young man of ready wit, and partook with him of his provisions, of which he had enough to have lasted beyond the forty days, though he had had more guests than myself. After supper we conversed for some time, and at last retired to bed. The next morning, when he arose, I held the basin of water to him, I also provided dinner, and at the proper time placed it on the table. After we had dined, I invented a play for our amusement, not only for that day, but for those that followed. I prepared supper after the same manner as I had done the dinner, and having supped, we retired to bed as before. We had sufficient time to contrast mutual friendship and esteem for each other. I found he loved me, and I on my part regarded him with so much affection that I often said to myself, those astrologers who predicted to his father that his son should die by my hand were impostors, for it is not possible that I could commit so base a crime. In short, madame, we spent thirty-nine days in the pleasantest manner possible in this subterraneous abode. The fourteenth day appeared, and in the morning when the young man awoke, he said to me with a transport of joy that he could not restrain, Prince, this is the fourteenth day, and I am not dead, thanks to God and your good company. My father will not fail to make you very shortly every acknowledgment of his gratitude for your attentions, and will furnish you with every necessary accommodation for your return to your kingdom. But, continued he, while we are waiting his arrival, I beg you will provide me some warm water in that portable bath, that I may wash my body and change my dress to receive my father with the more respect. I set the water on the fire, and when it was hot, poured it into the movable bath. The elf went in, and I both washed and wrapped him. At last he came out, and let himself down in his bed that I had prepared. After he had slept a while, he woke, and said, Dear prince, pray do me the favor to fetch me a melon and some sugar, that I may eat some to refresh me. Out of several melons that remained, I took the best, and laid it on a plate. And as I could not find a knife to cut it with, I asked the young man if he knew where there was one. There is one, said he, upon this cornice over my head. I accordingly saw it there, and made so much haste to reach it, that, while I had it in my hand, my foot being entangled in the carpet, I fell most unhappily upon the young man, and the knife burst his heart. 
At this spectacle I cried out with agony. I bit my head, my face and breast, I tore my clothes, I threw myself on the ground with unspeakable sorrow and grief. Alas! I exclaimed. There were only some hours wanting to have put him out of that danger from which he sought sanctuary here. And when I thought the danger passed, then I became his murderer, and verified the prediction. But, O oh Lord, said I, lifting up my face and my hands to heaven, I entreat thee pardon, and if I be guilty of his death, let me not live any longer. After this misfortune, I would have embraced death without any reluctance, had it presented itself to me. But what we wish, whether it be good or evil, will not always happen accordingly to our desire. Nevertheless, considering that all my tears and sorrows would not restore the young man to life, and the forty days being expired, I might be surprised by his father, I quitted the subterranean dwelling, let down the great stone upon the entrance, and covered it with earth. I had scarcely done, when, casting my eyes upon the sea towards the mainland, I perceived the vessel coming to fetch away the young man. I began then to consider what I had best do. I said to myself, If I am seen by the old man, he will certainly seize me, and perhaps cause me to be massacred by his slaves when he has discovered that his son is killed. All that I can allege to justify myself will not convince him of my innocence. It is better then to withdraw, while it is in my power, than to expose myself to his resentment. There happened to be near a large tree, thick with leaves, which I ascended in hopes of concealment, and was no sooner fixed in a place where I could not be perceived, than I saw the vessel come to the creek where she lay the first time. The old man with his slaves landed immediately, and advanced towards the subterranean dwelling with a countenance that showed some hope. But when they saw the earth had been newly removed, they changed color, particularly the old man. They lifted up the stone and went down. They called the young man by his name, but he not answering, their fears increased. They proceeded to seek him, and at length found him laying upon the bed with the knife in his heart, for I had not power to take it out. At this sight they cried out lamentably, which increased my sorrow. The old man fell down in a swoon. The slaves, to give him air, brought him up in their arms and led him at the foot of the tree where I was concealed. But notwithstanding all the pains they took to recover him, the unfortunate father continued a long while insensible, and made them more than once despair of his life. But at last he came to himself. The slaves then brought up his son's corpse, dressed in his best apparel, and when they had made a grave, they buried it. The old man, supported by two slaves, and his face covered with tears, threw the first earth upon the body, after which the slaves filled up the grave. This being done, all the furniture was brought up, and, with the remaining provisions, put on board the vessel. The old man, overcome with sorrow, and not being able to stand, was let upon a litter, and carried to the ship which stood out to sea, and in a short time was out of sight. After the old man and his slaves were gone, I was left alone upon the island. I lay that night in the subterranean dwelling which they had shut up, and when the day came I walked round the island, and stopped in such places as I thought most proper for repose. I led this wearisome life for a whole month. At the expiration of this time I perceived that the sea had receded, 
that the island had increased in dimensions. The mainland, too, seemed to be drawing nearer. In fact, the water sank so low that there remained between me and the continent but a small stream, which I crossed, and the water did not reach above the middle of my leg. I walked so long away upon the slime and sand that I was very weary. At last I got upon more firm ground, and when I had proceeded some distance from the sea, I saw a good way before me something that resembled a great fire, which afforded me some comfort. For, I said to myself, I shall find here some persons, it not being possible that this fire should kindle of itself. As I drew nearer, however, I found my error, and discovered that what I had taken for a fire was a castle of red copper which the beams of the sun made to appear at a distance like flames. I stepped in the neighbourhood of the castle, and sat down to admire its noble structure, and to rest myself. Before I had taken such a view of this magnificent building as it deserved, I saw ten handsome young men coming along, as if they had been taking a walk, but what surprised me was that they were all blind of the right eye. They were accompanied by an old man who was very tall and of a venerable aspect. I could not suppress my astonishment at the sight of so many half-blind men in company, and every one deprived of the same eye. As I was conjecturing by what adventure these men could come together, they approached, and seemed glad to see me. After the first salutations, they inquired what had brought me thither. I told them my story would be somewhat tedious, but if they would take the trouble to sit down, I would satisfy their curiosity. They did so, and I related to them all that had happened to me since I had left my kingdom, which filled them with astonishment. After I had concluded my account, the young gentlemen prayed me to accompany them into the castle. I accepted their offer, and we passed through a great many halls, antechambers, bedchambers, and closets, very well furnished, and came at last into a spacious hall, where there were ten small blue sofas set around, separate from one another, on which they sat by day and slept at night. In the middle of the circle stood an eleventh sofa, not so high as the rest, but of the same color, upon which the old man before mentioned sat down, and the young gentleman occupied the other ten. But as each sofa could only contain one man, one of the young men said to me, Comrades, sit down upon that carpet in the middle of the room, and do not inquire into anything that concerns us, nor the reason why we are all blind of the right eye. Be content with what you see, and let not your curiosity extend any farther. The old man, having sat a short time, arose and went out, but he returned in a minute or two, brought in supper, distributed to each man separately his proportion, and likewise brought me mine, which I ate apart as the rest did, and when supper was almost ended, he presented to each of us a cup of wine. They thought my story so extraordinary that they made me repeat it after supper, and it furnished conversation for a good part of the night. One of the gentlemen, observing that it was late, said to the old man, You do not bring us that with which we may acquit ourselves of our duty. At these words the old man arose, and went into a closet, and brought out thence upon his head ten basins, one after another, all covered with blue stuff. He placed one before every gentleman, together with a light. They uncovered their basins, which contained ashes, coal dust, and lamp-black. 
they mixed all together and rubbed and bedaubed their faces with it in such a manner as to make themselves look very frightful after having thus blackened themselves they wept and lamented beating their heads and breasts and crying continually this is the fruit of our idleness and debauches they continued this strange employment nearly the whole of the night and when they left off the old men brought them water with which they washed their faces and hands they changed all their clothes which were spoiled and put on others so that they exhibited no appearance of what they had been doing you may judge how uneasy i felt all this time i wished a thousand times to break the silence which had been imposed upon me and ask questions nor was it possible for me to sleep that night the next day soon after we had arisen we went out to walk and then i said to them gentlemen i declare to you that i must renounce the law which you prescribed to me last night for i cannot observe it you are men of sense you have convinced me that you do not want understanding yet i have seen you do such actions as none but madmen could be capable of whatever misfortune befalls me i cannot forbear asking why you bedaubed your faces with black how it has happened that each of you has but one eye some singular circumstance must certainly be the cause therefore i conjure you to satisfy my curiosity to these pressing instances they answered only that it was no business of mine to make such inquiries and that i should do well to hold my peace we passed that day in conversation upon indifferent subjects and when night was come and every man had supped the old men brought in the blue basins and the young gentlemen as before bedabbed their faces wept and beat themselves crying this is the fruit of our idleness and debauches and continued the same actions the following night at last not being able to resist my curiosity i earnestly prayed them to satisfy me or to show me how to return to my own kingdom for it was impossible for me to keep them company any longer and to see every night such an odd exhibition without being permitted to know the reason End of section fifteen.